From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. So while this may be a win, that maybe we're going to try and get China to move forward in ways that it hasn't before, so much of these, uh, you know, devil in the details uh, are still going to be playing out. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. As we open season four, trade and tariffs continue to dominate headlines and impact market forces. Today on our show, we have Miami Law's Kathleen Clausen back with us. Clausen is a former associate general counsel at the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Kathleen. Welcome back to The Explainer. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, trade. Um, so I guess first let's talk about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Is this just a rebrand? Well, this is a really exciting day to have this conversation. Uh, we are recording this uh, in the midst of the Senate vote on this new agreement. So I can't imagine a better time to talk about it. Since we last spoke in an earlier episode, there have been a number of major changes made to the originally signed agreement. Most of those changes really move us in a new direction. So what they had before was an, an update uh, that looked a lot like an agreement that the Obama administration had negotiated before, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. This one, on the other hand, now with these changes, which were led primarily by Democrats in Congress, as I understand, they make some significant changes we haven't seen before in a trade agreement. And they do that primarily in two areas, and they're related. One is labor, and the second is dispute settlement. So what we've seen in this protocol of amendments that was added in December is a robust labor enforcement mechanism that's intended to go after Mexican companies that are not enforcing the law or that are not rather abiding by Mexican labor law, particularly when it comes to collective bargaining arrangements. So it actually allows the United States to bring a case to set up a labor team, an expert team that would go down and look at what's happening in a particular Mexican business uh, if that Mexican business was not complying and, and Mexico couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So that's a big change from what we've seen before, as I say. Uh, there's still a lot that has not been completed. Uh, that is that the uh, the new protocol of amendment sets up uh, a, that there will be in the future rules of evidence uh, in the dispute settlement proceedings. That's another big change and I think an important one uh, because in past dispute settlement proceedings we've had under the NAFTA, we haven't had uh, a, a significant way to bring in, introduce evidence in any disputes that would arise. So I think rules of evidence uh, like the labor one are big, important advances uh, that we have uh, achieved uh, through this new protocol. But as I said, there's still more on the table that we haven't seen yet in, in the protocol, something that, in fact, uh, Florida residents will be looking at in particular, uh, a seasonal produce plan. So the, the U.S. Trade Representative, it was announced earlier this week, uh, committed to coming up with a plan uh, within 60 days of the U.S. MCA's entry into force, which, again, we expect to be very soon now that the Senate is, is voting on it today. So 
the lawmakers from uh, both this state and from from Georgia in particular have criticized USMCA uh, for not having protections for seasonal growers. Um, right? the, the premise here is that low-cost produce from Mexico is harming U.S. producers. So Senator Scott uh, said he's going to be undecided until we get these seasonal issues resolved. Uh, Senator Rubio said he's, he's prepared to vote because he thinks we're making progress. So those are issues that I know folks in this area are, are keyed into. The China agreement just came down this week. What's that going to look like? Another big topic. Yes, I mean, we really couldn't have this conversation on a better day for that reason either. Um, We've all been busy trying to read this deal that was signed yesterday. Uh, I'm sure listeners have heard about that front page news. Uh, So it's useful to think about how we got here uh, just for a moment. And the way we got to this China deal, we may recall, was through an investigation that the U.S. Trade Representative conducted now a couple years ago, more than that, uh, where they were looking at particularly intellectual intellectual property issues in China. And that was the, the focus of the investigation. How, in what ways, what acts, policies, and practices uh, does China have and maintain uh, that are putting our IP, U.S. IP, at risk. Uh, and so there were a number of different layers to that, but that's the central premise. So so now, of course, everyone's saying, well, let's look at this deal. How does that resolve those issues? Right? That's the purpose of the deal. We should be resolving these intellectual property questions, making sure China's not stealing uh, U.S. intellectual property and trade secrets. Well, we have some of that. Um, so this deal, right, breaking news, right, came out yesterday. We're all still reading it. It's almost 100 pages long. Uh, It is, uh, in many ways, an IP agreement. It does uh, create an action plan uh, for moving forward in in China with respect to certain IP issues. But most of the criticisms that we're hearing, and and I think these are fair, uh, are about it doesn't go go far enough. So this is phase one, uh, they've said, but not really clear when phase two will will come along. Um, There's also a, a bit of a fuzzy dispute settlement enforcement mechanism that Democrats were quick to criticize to say, hey, this is not enough. There's no third party. There's no judge here that's going to say China's in the wrong. It comes back to us and the possibility of more tariffs uh, to enforce this agreement. So in many respects, critics have said, I think rightly so, this looks pretty similar to the systems we had in place in prior administrations to talk to China about these things. But would it really motivate China to make the changes that we were hoping the tariffs would, would make all along? Again, remains to be seen. Big ticket items that are found in this agreement or, or have been discussed around the, the, the margins that will happen. Purchases uh, of U.S. products, like major purchases that, that, that China is, has committed to make, um, up to $200 billion uh, of purchases of U.S. products beyond what they were making in 2017. That's a really big number. We'll see if, that, if they can reach that. In return, right, we've committed to cutting some of the tariffs, not all of them, but some of them. Notably, China is not cutting its retaliatory tariffs. It's just agreed to buy all these U.S. products. So, so that's a bit of the flavor of what's in there. But uh, you know, we have to remember at the same time that many of our, our uh, tariffs remain in place. That means that U.S. importers are still in going through this very opaque process of how they can be excluded 
from those tariffs. Uh, you know, they say they're hurting me, they shouldn't be applied to me, and it's really not clear how is it that they can get that exclusion. That's been a, a major criticism, and again, I think rightly so, about how the tariffs have been enforced. So, so while this may be a win, that maybe we're going to try and get China to move forward in ways that it hasn't before, so much of these, uh, you know, devil in the details uh, are still going to be playing out. Last thing I'll say on China is that uh, it becomes uh, very much quickly a question of um, should the executive be doing this alone? Mm-hmm. So in my opinion, the biggest issue that hasn't been discussed with respect to the China deal is what is the place of Congress in making this major agreement? And I just said that, okay, maybe at the end of the day, the commitments are not as significant as, as uh, the White House has suggested that they are. But this is, again, remember, is an issue that the Constitution assigns to Congress, right? Congress has the lead on foreign commerce. Uh, And so I think this should be something that the Congress should take a closer look at. Well, China's not the only trading partner in play. Can we talk a little about our other partners? Sure, you're totally right about that. Um, and, and this administration has made progress on updating various agreements or or entering into smaller trade agreements. And here again, we're talking about a, a question of separation of powers uh, that, that Congress has been reasonably cut out of some of these discussions, the update to the Korea-U.S. Uh, trade trade agreement. We've had a, a small agreement with Japan uh, and, and a second agreement with Japan on digital trade, so one that addressed tariffs and one that addressed digital trade matters. Now we're looking, of course, to the U.K., uh, as everyone's watching what's going to happen with Brexit. The U.K. and the U.S. have been in discussion And finally, the last trading partner with which uh, we are in uh, deep discussion is the European Union. The European Union is a little bit more complicated situation because all of those discussions are wrapped up with a longstanding dispute uh, between Airbus and Boeing that the EU and the United States have been litigating at the World Trade Organization for many, many years. So so those tariffs related to the Airbus-Boeing dispute are, are really complicating, I think, the discussions that the EU and the U.S. can have going forward towards a broader free trade agreement. But we'll watch that space. And what role does the World Trade Organization play here? Uh, Another great question, because uh, that has been another space where we've seen a lot of interesting activity. And I I use that term gingerly because uh, a lot of criticism uh, toward the United States recently has focused on what it has done uh, vis-a-vis the appellate body of the World Trade Organization. And just as a reminder to to listeners, this is the sort of appeals court uh, for all the disputes that are happening in the World Trade Organization. And ordinarily, it would be uh, comprised of seven members, uh, and they would hear all the appeals coming out of disputes like that Airbus-Boeing related one. Uh, But uh, the United States has blocked the appointment of many members of all the recent members that uh, have been suggested to have been appointed. And we've lost uh, members in the meantime. So the result is that there is no existing appellate body at the present moment. Uh, There's only one member. uh, And so that's not a quorum to hear any any of the cases. We'll have to see what what comes of that. It doesn't look like the United States is going to change its position. Um, This has really strangled the effectiveness in many ways of that dispute settlement system. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that the WTO has totally lost its significance. We still participate. There's still conversations ongoing there. So I think the the upshot is that the World Trade Organization continues to be a big player, but it's lost some of that value that was added by having a, a robust dispute settlement mechanism. You were quoted recently in the Wall Street Journal in a story about challenges to the White House's trade strategy. 
Where do those challenges stand? There are a number of challenges underway in the court system in the United States. So now we shift back to looking at what is it our judicial system can do uh, about the the trade policies that we're seeing uh, from our executive branch. The answer there is that um, they're all in motion. Uh, We don't have any settled big decisions from any of the courts at this time. Most of these are challenges to the particular tariffs that the Trump administration has put on products, whether steel and uh, aluminum-related tariffs that were related to national security uh, or the the China-focused tariffs. But but most of us are watching this steel and aluminum tariffs because uh, that challenge uh, is moving through now the appellate level in our U.S. court system and and likely will go to the Supreme Court uh, in the coming year because wrapped up in that that tariff dispute is another issue that— that our, our lawyer listeners will be familiar with. It's the non-delegation doctrine. And so the question is really, has Congress delegated too much to the executive on tariffs? Uh, and will that have a ripple effect on other delegations Congress has made over the years? So it's not just a, a trade dispute that's really at issue here. We're talking about a, a much uh, wider impact on the entire regulatory state. Well, thanks for joining us. This was super interesting. One more question. Don't you have a trade conference coming up here at the university? We do. We have a, a big international economic law uh, conference that's part of the American Society of International Law, International Economic Law Interest Group. It's the biennial conference of, of that group. And we're delighted to host that here uh, at the law school, February 14th and 15th. Uh, and registration information is available on the law school website. Terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugez. Today's episode was brought to you by the University of Miami School of Law's International Arbitration Institute, a hub for the education of the new generation of arbitration lawyers and for the research of international arbitration. For more information, go to www.law.miami.edu forward slash IAI.